the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. James Blind is producing. Sam Maupin is engineering. Today we'll hear from Holly Girth in the second hour of today's program, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. That's coming up. In our second hour, we'll also share another excerpt from Heaven and Nature Sing, Hannah Anderson's volume on the Advent. That's coming up in our second hour. But for now, well, the news and the headlines from today. Well, the Senate today passed a resolution from the House, or yeah, from the House, by a margin of 80 to 15 to adopt a tentative agreement that railroads and unions negotiated in September, under the supervision of the White House, it will now go to the president for his signature. In the absence of a deal, the nationwide freight rail shutdown due to to a strike or lockdown would have been possible starting December 9th. And by the way, it still is possible. But with passage of the resolution, the labor agreement based on the independent recommendations of the president's emergency board, plus a few concessions on sick leave from the A deal brokered by the Secretary of Labor in September will become the new National Freight Rail Labor Contract once the president signs it. Railroads, uh, railroads rather, would have begun to shutter some services as early as this weekend in the absence of a deal. Sectors like agriculture, energy and raw materials are especially dependent on rail service and consumer goods and some passenger routes would have been affected as well. Well, the contract is for the period from the start of 2020. Through the end of 2024, Uh, since much of that time has already elapsed, workers will immediately receive the pay raises they should have received in the past. Uh, The deal includes a 24 percent pay raise, 24 percent over the next uh, five year period, the largest in the history of national bargaining and one thousand dollar annual bonuses. It also uh, preserves the status quo on health benefits which railroads um, had sought to change. Rail workers' health benefits are some of the most generous of the uh, industry in the country. Total annual average compensation for freight rail workers in the U.S., including benefits, will rise uh, to approximately $160,000 per year under the new contract. I think, Sam, we're in the wrong line of work. $160,000 a year, and that's pretty striking. Well, Craig Bannister made the point that a rail strike would be absolutely catastrophic to global food security due to fertilizer shortages, but that, it appears, has been averted. But he suggested a rail strike would be absolutely catastrophic. We ship about 50% of all fertilizers via rail, and if a strike occurred... Uh, And we have to find alternative uh, sources. There really are not great options for moving that much fertilizer right before spring planting season. So, again, crisis may be averted. The president is expected to sign what he asked Congress uh, to produce. A little closer to home, city council members here in Portland have voted to allocate $27 million of the city's budget to build a network of designated camping areas for Homeless people approving a fiercely disputed budget as a measure as the city tries to address its homelessness crisis. 
Well, the money will help finance a measured um, a measure rather passed by the city council earlier this month that banned street camping and approved the creation of six outdoor sites where homeless people will be allowed to camp. Under the measure, a ban on street camping will phase in over the next year, year and a half, uh, as sites are completed. Well, before the vote on Wednesday, the uh, mayor. Portland Mayor uh, Ted Wheeler acknowledged the measure was controversial, but that he nonetheless believes it's very, very believes in it very, very deeply. He and other supporters of the measure contend it will make streets safer and connect homeless people with social services. That is, of course, if they um, are compelled to move or are willing to move. He went on to say we must end self-directed, unsanctioned camping in the city of Portland. I think everyone agrees on that point. He went on to say we deal with mental health issues. We deal with substance abuse issues. We deal with human feces. uh, We deal with naked people running down the street, people who are unable to even acknowledge who and where they are because their afflictions are that serious. It is beneath us as a moral and ethical society to have that happening in our community. And therefore, we need to do something differently. Again, broad agreement. We need to do something differently. The question is, is this the approach that will uh, will be the right approach? The $27 million will help but launch the first three campsites, with nearly half uh, going toward their operational costs for the remainder of the fiscal year. About $4 million of it will uh, be directed to the site's preparation and construction. And the measure amended the uh, city's budget for the current fiscal year to include the uh, new projections. So we'll keep an eye on the project as it moves forward. Well, the Supreme Court said today it will leave President Biden's student loan cancellation program on hold and that it will hear oral arguments in the case in February of next year. In October, a federal appeals court temporarily blocked the student loan forgiveness plan. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit granted an administrative stay in response to a challenge to that order by a coalition of six Republican-led states. The administration had asked Justice Brett Kavanaugh, uh, who is responsible for handling emergency applications arising from Eighth Circuit cases, to lift the injunction last month. In an order on Thursday, the court said... Uh, consideration of the request to lift the injunction is is uh, deferred pending oral argument. In other words, no. A federal judge in Texas also blocked the president's student loan forgiveness plan last month in response to a lawsuit from the Job Creators Network Foundation. The conservative advocacy group filed a suit in October. They argued that the administration violated federal procedures by not allowing borrowers to provide public comment before the program was unveiled. Judge Mark Pittman of the Northern District of Texas called the plan an unconstitutional exercise of Congress's legislative power and noted the program failed to go through standard regulatory processes. No one can plausibly deny that it is either one of the largest delegations of legislative power to the executive branch or one of the largest exercises of legislative power without congressional authority in the history of the United States, he wrote in his 26-page opinion. The president planned to forgive up to $10,000 in federal student debt for those making under $125,000 annually and households making under $250,000, as well as relieving $20,000 in debt for Pell Grant recipients. The executive action would transfer the cost of the loans to the American public. For now, that will not move forward until the Supreme Court takes it up next year. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue to work our way through some of the day's headlines. Also coming up in the second hour, a conversation with Holly Girth, 
the powerful purpose of introverts. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, an appeals court has denied former President Trump's special master to clear the way for the Department of Justice to begin its investigation. A federal appeals court today terminated an independent internal reviewer, otherwise known as a special master, appointed to examine thousands of documents that the former president allegedly took uh, illegally um, upon leaving the White House. Well, the move is significant because it clears the way for the Department of Justice to pursue its ongoing investigation into the former president's handling of those documents. The law is clear, the appeals court wrote in its statement released today. We cannot write a rule that allows any subject of a search warrant to block government investigations after the execution of the warrant, nor can we write a rule that allows only former presidents to do so. To create a special exemption here would deny our nation's foundational principles that our law applies to all without regard to numbers, wealth, or rank. Well, former President Trump was originally granted a special master in September by Florida District Judge Aileen Cannon over the uh, protests of the Department of Justice that presidents are not protected by executive privilege after leaving office. However, the appointment of a special master is uncommon and drew concern of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, a jurisdiction that includes Florida, Alabama and Georgia. Well, clearing the special master hurdle now permits the Department of Justice recently appointed special counsel Jack Smith, who the former president has called compromised and a political hitman on Truth Social and the Department of Justice to use the documents in question in their investigation. Well, President Biden's attorney general, Merrick Garland, appointed Smith to uh, the post three days after the former president announced his intention to run for the 2024 Republican presidential nomination. Well, based on recent developments, he said at the time, including the former president's announcement that he is a candidate for president in the next election and the sitting president's stated intention to be a candidate as well. I have concluded that it is in the public's interest to appeal a special counsel Garland said at the news conference in mid-November. And as mentioned, the appeals court has denied the former president the special master he had not only requested, had been granted. Again, that story is developing, but the Department of Justice investigation will now move forward unabated. Well, President Biden's student loan debt relief program, which seeks to forgive hundreds of billions of dollars owed to tens of millions of borrowers, has been handed another loss. On a mission, uh, Democrats are set to upend the 2024 presidential nominating calendar. Democratic Party officials gathered in the nation's capital this week on a mission to revamp the top of their 2024 presidential nominating calendar, a move that could have major consequences for the party far beyond their primary schedule in the next White House race. On the agenda, when the Democratic National Committee's Rules and Bylaws Committee convenes is whether Iowa and New Hampshire, which have held the first two contests in the DNC's presidential primary and caucus schedule for half a century, will keep their traditional leadoff positions, or if the party will shake up the order and look to a more diverse state to kick off the cycle. The way of the future, Elon Musk is on the verge of testing computer chip implants in human brains. No, thank you. Expose sign, a questionable Connection, a Georgia candidate representative Warnock 
was the youth pastor of a church that hosted a Farrakhan town hall. The back and forth between the two candidates is continuing to devolve into ugly rumors and accusations. In the hot seat, the collapse of cryptocurrency trading platform FTX has put a spotlight on Rostin Benham, the chairman of the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. It's a little-known independent agency. It's tasked with overseeing commodity and derivatives markets. Well, Benham, who was sworn into the position less than a year ago, appeared during a hearing on Thursday morning, hosted by the Senate Agriculture Committee, uh, the panel given oversight power over the CFTC to discuss FTX collapse. Well, FTX, the cryptocurrency gig, declared bankruptcy in November after the uh, a competitor's audit of the company's finances revealed a significant liquidity crunch. Well, House Republicans are opposing Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, his endangered bid for speaker, saying he's uh, not agreeing to their demands, which include significant changes in how the GOP conference operates and major spending cuts. They say they're prepared to vote against his candidacy for speaker on the uh, on the House floor on January 3rd if McCarthy, the Republican of California, doesn't cede to their demands. And they claim there are several other Republicans who will do the same. Representative Ralph Norman from South Carolina said if it's just changes to House rules, well, he'll vote no. It's going to have to be more substantive than just rules. Rules can be waived. He's going to have to give an ironclad agreement that we will have a budget that will balance. If not, in seven years, give me a time frame. Well, defending China, left-leaning media figures continue to praise the Communist Chinese Party's zero-COVID policy. Apparently, they don't care what the people who are actually living under that policy are now saying. In a blanket denial, FTX CEO Sam Bankman-Fried, he claims he was not trying to buy influence with donations to news outlets. He's just a happy, generous guy. It's Ripley's Believe It or Not. Bill Maher roasts the crazy left, as he called them, for insisting men can get pregnant. Quieted down, school board members are calling for a truce after a year of equity battles. Of course, that all depends on what policies they will embrace moving forward. Well, Democrats uh, elected Hakeem Jeffries to lead the House minority with Pelosi's resigning office. The House Democrats uh, yesterday elected New York uh, Representative Hakeem Jeffries, who has uh, repeatedly painted conservatives as racist as their leader, making him the successor to Nancy Pelosi, who led the House Democrats for decades and served as speaker when the party was in the majority. National Review points out that Jeffries will be the House minority leader come January when Republicans retake control of the chamber. He said hopes to find common ground when possible with Republicans, but will oppose their extremism when we must, end quote. Elon Musk claims Twitter interfered with the elections. A Twitter owner and CEO Elon Musk on Wednesday acknowledged that prior to his takeover, the obvious reality was that Twitter has interfered in elections through its content moderation policies. Musk's explosive uh, assertion came in response to comments made by Yoel Roth, Twitter's former head of trust and safety, who indicated the social media platform was not safer under the Tesla CEO's leadership. Roth uh, was speaking at a Knight Foundation conference on Tuesday when he explained why he resigned from Twitter. 
Twitter, accusing Musk of running the company like a dictator. Elon Musk says the obvious reality, as long-term users know, is that Twitter has failed in trust and safety for a very long time and has interfered in elections. Twitter 2.0 will be far more effective, transparent, and even-handed. Katie Pavlich says, most infamously, Twitter banned any mention of Hunter Biden's laptop from, well, Hades, in the lead-up to the 2020 presidential election. By default, they also censored Joe Biden's deep involvement and shady business dealings with foreign adversaries. The European Union is threatening Musk with a European Twitter ban if he does not agree to content regulation. Reuters reports that the European Union has threatened Elon Musk's Twitter with a ban unless the billionaire abides by its strict rules on content moderation, setting up a regulatory battle over the future of the social media platform. EU industry chief Thierry Breton made the threat during a video meeting with Musk on Wednesday. The Financial Times reports that among the EU's demands is that Musk provides clear criteria on which users are at risk of being banned. Musk has reinstated... Uh, Donald Trump's account after holding a poll of users on whether the former U.S. president should be allowed to return to the site. Well, the House has passed legislation to halt a rail strike. They've uh, they sent the bill to the Senate. The Senate approved. Now it's headed to the president's desk. Whether or not it will be embraced. Well, that remains to be seen. The president has authorized a one point one billion dollar arms sale to Taiwan. No doubt uh, an effort to thwart a Chinese invasion. Bloomberg reports the Biden administration is preparing to sell $1.1 billion in missiles and radar support to Taiwan, according to an official familiar with the matter in what would be the largest such transfer transfer rather in almost two years. The package would include as much as $650 million in continued support for a surveillance radar sold earlier, about $90 million for roughly 100 Sidewinder air-to-air missiles, as well as about 60 additional anti-ship harpoon missiles, the official said both weapons have been sold to taiwan previously you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll take a break you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq hey welcome back you're listening to the georgine rice show by the way there are only five performances left of the portland singing christmas tree beginning friday night two performances on saturday two performances on sunday and then the 60th anniversary will be no more So let me encourage you to go to kpdq.com for all the important details and to buy your tickets. Well, the Chinese Communist Party pledges to resolutely crack down on protesters as the protests have continued. The weather has helped them in that regard. China's ruling Communist Party has vowed to resolutely crack down on infiltration and sabotage activities by hostile forces. Following the largest street demonstrations in decades by citizens who are fed up with strict antivirus restrictions, a massive show of force by the security services on Wednesday sought to deter further uh, protests. The statement from the Central Political and Legal Affairs Commission released late Tuesday followed protests that broke out over the weekend in Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou and several other cities. While it did not uh, directly address the protests, the statement was a reminder of the party's de- uh, determination to enforce its rules. The New York Post uh, reports that the anger that started with protests against China's brutal zero COVID policies, but widened to calls for President Xi Jinping to step down, has led to at least 43 protests in 22 cities, according to Australia's ASPI think tank. That tally does not yet include those later in the week. 
Well, CNN continues slashing jobs. An all-staff memo was sent to employees at CNN by the CEO, indicating that the network has begun the process of layoffs. The memo was tweeted out by the news channel's senior media reporter, on Wednesday, an all-staff memo was sent to employees at CNN by CEO Chris Licht, indicating that the network has begun the process of layoffs. The network faced a messy legal battle following Zucker's um, departure around the handling of his firing and the firing of Chris Cuomo. Warner Brothers Discovery seeks to uh, continue cutting costs at CNN to pay off some of the debt from its merger earlier this year as well. Well, Elon Musk has resolved the differences that he and Apple apparently had after a meetup. The Wall Street Journal reported that a potential battle between Apple Inc. and Twitter Inc. appears to have been averted after a meeting between Elon Musk and Tim Cook. Mr. Musk, the new owner of Twitter, said that he had met with the Apple chief executive in a set of tweets on Wednesday. Elon uh, uh, said uh, was a good conversation. Among other things, we resolved the misunderstanding about Twitter potentially being removed from the App Store. Tim was clear that Apple never considered doing so. A Louisiana trans teacher says um, he or she, I'm not sure which, enjoys confusing students about gender identity. I mean, isn't that the role of the teacher to confuse the pupil? Well, a Louisiana teacher posted on Facebook how confusing students about gender identity was enjoyable. The teacher, Blaine Banghart, and I'm not sure what the gender Uh, The chosen gender is, is a music teacher at University Elementary School in Shreveport, Louisiana, who uses the term MX as opposed to Mr. or Ms. The kids are all confused and asking why I have a mustache if I'm a girl and if I'm Mr. Banghart now, why I'm trying to look like a boy, etc. Banghart wrote, I'm just ignoring these questions, redirecting so I don't get in trouble. Enjoys confusing students. Inside the classroom, this teacher claims that... um, he enjoys causing her his students. Now I'm confused. San Francisco approves the use of robots to assist police in killing and incapacitating people. The National Review reports the San Francisco Board of Supervisors approved a policy on Tuesday officially allowing police to arm human-controlled robots with explosives to kill or incapacitate people in extreme circumstances. According to the policy, which was approved in an 8-3 to three vote, Robots will only be used as a deadly force option when risks of loss of life to members of the public or officers are imminent and outweigh any other force option available. Well, the board uh, amended the policy Tuesday to note that only a limited number of high-ranking officers could authorize the use of robots as a deadly force option and that they could only be used after other de-escalation tactics had failed. Well, deaths by firearms have risen. The number of individuals killed with firearms in the United States has risen to the three-decade high. 2021 set a record of 48,953 deaths in the U.S. with firearms. Those killed by firearms were predominantly male, though the data also indicates that since the 90s, all demographic groups across the U.S. have seen an increase in the number of deaths by firearms. Among black men, the leading cause of firearm deaths was homicide, while among white men, it was suicide. For black men killed by firearms, the highest percentage were young men, ages 20 to 24. For white males, it was those between 80 and 84, among primarily due to suicide. Homicides with firearms were 23 times higher among black males and four times higher among Hispanic males, 
The trend is clearly going in the wrong direction. Firearm-related homicides among black men has increased by 74% since 2014, and suicides among white men have risen 41% since 2007. And while the mainstream media loves to target firearms as the culprit, this conveniently avoids the real societal problems, a culture that is feeding this kind of deadly behavior, particularly in gang-ridden urban centers. Democrats are pushing for a lame duck spending spree with Republicans set to take control of the House in January. Democrats in both the House and the Senate are scrambling to pass another massive spending bill through Congress before losing control. Democrats are seeking $150 billion in additional spending on their pet social programs to be added to an omnibus government funding bill. They hope to get Republicans on board by adding $75 billion in defense spending, a 10.3 percent increase over last year. The investment in military spending is long overdue, and Democrats want Republicans to hold their collective noses and greenlight this spending spree. Total government spending this year was equivalent to 25.1 percent of GDP, far higher than the 50-year average of 21 percent. Meanwhile, tax revenues was also up. Revenue, singular, was also up 19.6 percent of GDP the second highest in U.S. history. The Wall Street Journal observes Democrats want to build a baseline outlays that keep spending that high and maintain pressure to keep raising taxes. Their goal, as always, is to grow America's dependency on government, and this proposed omnibus is just another step down that road. The U.S. economy grew faster in the third quarter than first estimated, and Treasury Department indicates House Democrats now have Donald Trump's tax returns. The saga continues. An ex-Twitter safety chief admits Hunter Biden laptop censorship was, well, a mistake. A new study, a new peer-reviewed study from German scientists, found that offshore wind farms, the sort of supposedly green alternative to existing energy sources with which President Biden and Democrats want to fill America's coastal waters, are not as safe for marine ecosystems as their proponents may argue. The researchers looked at one area of an ecosystem in particular, the North Sea, where the world's largest offshore wind farm, OWF, opened earlier in 2022. Relying on modeling and simulations in order to see what the systematic large-scale time-integrated response of the ocean to large OWF clusters would be, the study's authors found evidence that offshore wind power generation, supposedly, supposedly rather great for the planet, actually introduced factors that negatively impacted sea life. Americans are losing trust in the military for a variety of reasons. You can read more in the Wall Street Journal about that. The Biden administration approved a rule that funnels workers' retirement funds into left-wing causes. And CNN announced more layoffs uh, during a difficult year. Katie Hobbs is suing Arizona County uh, for refusing to certify the gubernatorial election. Again, that saga That election saga continues. On this day in history, 1824, the presidential election is turned over to the U.S. House of Representatives when a deadlock develops between John Quincy Adams, Andrew Jackson, William H. Crawford, and Henry Clay. Adams, as you probably surmised, would end up the winner. 1862, President Abraham Lincoln sends his second annual message to Congress in which he recalls for the he calls rather for the abolition of slavery and says, fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress and this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. 
1942, during World War II, nationwide gasoline rationing goes into effect in the United States. The goal is not so much to save on gas, but to conserve rubber, as in tires, desperately needed for the war effort. 1952, the New York Daily News runs a front-page story on Christine Jorgensen's sex reassignment surgery with the headline, XGI Becomes Blonde Beauty. 1952. 1955, Rosa Parks, a black seamstress, is arrested after refusing to give up her seat to a white man on a Montgomery, Alabama city bus, an incident that would spark a year-long boycott of the buses and the civil rights movement. 1965, an airlift of refugees from Cuba to the United States begins, in which thousands of Cubans were allowed to leave their homeland. 1969, the U.S. government holds its first draft lottery since World War II. And 1989, Soviet President Mikhail Gorbachev meets with Pope John Paul II at the Vatican. 1990, British and French workers digging the Channel Tunnel between their countries finally meet after knocking out a passage in a service tunnel. And in 2013, Edward J. Babe Heffron, 90, whose World War II service as a member of the Easy Company was recounted in the book and television miniseries Band of Brothers, dies in Stratford, New Jersey. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our second hour, a conversation with Holly Girth, author of the, Perp- the Powerful Purpose of Introverts. If you happen to be one, I think you'll be encouraged. Also, another excerpt from Hannah Anderson's uh, Advent uh, devotional, Heaven and Nature Sing. So stick around for all of that. Well, years from now, students of American history will be taught the era when college students were kept from living near one another because of the color of their skin. When separate graduation ceremonies were held for students of color because of a group's unease with the commingling of the races. When students were kept out of colleges because of their ethnicity and when governors openly questioned the learning abilities of school children of color. Well, colleges are now turning to segregation to solve racial ills. The history books covering this era, however, won't be talking about the Jim Crow South or George Wallace of 1963. His declaration urging segregation now, segregation forever. He may be more right than he realized. They will instead be referring to the last five years in which colleges have begun separating students by race out of concern that it might damage the mental health of non-white students if they are forced to interact with white students. This is where we have come. What was once discarded as an embarrassing remnant of the Jim Crow era has now become a um, de rigueur of uh, college campuses, uh, returning to the form of affinity groups, racially separate housing arrangements and segregated theatrical performances. I remember as a very young child watching the civil rights movement unfold on television screens and the fear I felt about what life was going to be like in school and in public places. Well, late last year, for instance, Harvard hosted an adaptation of Macbeth that the school designated as an exclusive place for black identifying audience members, black identifying audience members. The performance examines what it means to be an ambitious black woman through the lens of one of Shakespeare's most iconic characters, according to the announcement. Well, the desire for segregation on the campus has spread far beyond mere meetings and performances. According to a study of 173 public and private colleges and universities conducted by the National Association of Scholars, 43% 
at programs to segregate student housing by race or sexual orientation. 46% of schools had racially segregated orientation programs. Often unaware of the inherent irony, schools uh, uh, conduct racially exclusive anti-racism training. How's that for an oxymoron for the 21st century? Also, 76% of the schools studied the NAS, studied by NAS rather, had segregated graduation ceremonies. Columbia University, for example, announced it would be holding six separate graduation ceremonies for students based on characteristics such as race, sexuality, income level. After word of the graduation ceremonies hit the Internet, Columbia backtracked and rebranded the graduation ceremonies as graduation celebrations. Well, the pro-segregation rush has grown to um, encompass physical structures as well with school buildings, student unions and dorms. So students of color will not have to suffer the apparent trauma that might be brought on by seeing a white person. A 2020 viral video featured a black University of Virginia student giving a public service announcement in which she declared there were just too many white people in here. And this is a space for people of color, end quote. In 2019, rather, Syracuse students submitted a list of demands to the school's administration that included the right to exclude potential dorm roommate assignments based on the individual's race. And Washington University in St. Louis, the president of the student union, urged the school to seize the campus fraternity houses, evict the disproportionately wealthy and white residents and transfer their buildings to historically marginalized groups. Now, this is all taking place in a culture in which the adult progressives openly champion policies damaging to the academic prospects of African-Americans and other minorities. In 2021, Oregon Governor Kate Brown eliminated a test offered by the state, uh, the high schools that measured whether students had mastered the essential skills that had been taught. Too many students of color were not getting passing grades. So rather than seeking new ways to teach these students, Governor Brown simply eliminated the test until 2024. That's going to be useful in your job searching in the future. Well, the idea that black students are incapable of learning essential skills is straight out of the segregationist playbook, which I pointed out at the time, which posited that inferiority and helplessness of minorities that cannot be altered. And it's this ideology that's found fertile ground on college campuses, which remain one of the few places in America where such errant nonsense can gain purchase. It's our elite universities, after all, that are currently standing before the Supreme Court and arguing that an admissions policy designed to limit the number of Asian Americans in their student bodies is not inherently racism, turning our culture and our priorities on its head. It's unbelievable to me, as an African-American woman who lived through that era, witnessed the fights that were Uh, that granted equality, and now the reversal that we're seeing in the 21st century. It's mind-boggling. Wake up, says Laura Hollis. Balenciago is what's coming. She's referring, of course, uh, to the case, in case you missed it, that the fashion house created a furor last week when its ad campaign featuring toddler girls holding teddy bears sporting BDSM, bondage, and sadomasochism outfits. And lest you think the kitty porn reference was somehow a misunderstanding or a one-off, yet another photograph in an apparently separate ad campaign featuring a page from the U.S. Supreme Court's opinion 
in United States versus Williams, a case involving, you guessed it, child pornography, discreetly peeping out from underneath a Balenciaga bag. Well, that wasn't the case. It was supposed to be very edgy, but it is what some suggest what we can expect as we see the continual sexualization of children. The statement Balenciaga uh, finally issued reveals much. Although the uh, company took responsibility and stated that they strongly uh, condemn child abuse, the statement also admits grievous errors and the wrong choice in addressing and validating the images. In other words, the higher-ups in the company absolutely saw the images and approved them in advance. In truth, nothing else would even uh, be remotely plausible given that these campaigns likely cost hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars to roll out. No company spends that kind of money without its thumbs up from the C-suit. So notwithstanding their opposition to child abuse, quite a few someones thought this campaign was clever marketing and acceptable. In a predictable split of opinion, the Hollywood types who patronize companies like Bellagiano, or however it's uh, pronounced, are either clearly conflicted, Kim Kardashian, or uh, or strangely silenced, Nicole Kidman. Meanwhile, the general public is outraged. After all, we expect uh, haute couture to be a little well, out there, but this involves children, and we protect children, right? Or at least we do on paper. Tim Winter also weighed in, pointing out that it was only a matter of time before another corporation was caught sexualizing children for, pop, for profit. After public outcry, fashion label Balenciago uh, recently axed its ad campaign that showed small children holding teddy bears dressed in bondage gear. The company issued, as I mentioned, a, uh, an apology. We may never know the answer, but Balenciago, highly distur- um, disturbing ad campaign, is only the latest of many examples we have seen over the last few years of corporations normalizing, enabling, and profiting from the sexualization of children in their products and content. For example, Netflix Big Mouth is an animated TV series about middle schoolers going through puberty and depicts 12 and 13 year olds in sexualized situations, um, sometimes with full frontal nudity and engaging in dialogue that includes offering sexual favors to adults. Netflix's Cuties depict 11 year old girls performing sexually charged dances. Popular HBO series Euphoria is another example. Disney's A Teacher centers on a romantic relationship with a, uh, an adult and a child as well. Child exploitation happens in the retail world as well. In the 2020, um, the Hasbro company removed a um, Poppy Trolls doll that from retail shelves after the public became aware of a button located under the doll's skirt in the um, region that is supposed to be private. Uh, when pressed, would make the doll gasp and giggle. Well, despite numerous public calls for them to do so, Hasbro never disclosed the uh, the steps, if any, that it took to ensure a product like this will not make it to the market again. I could go on. Children are being bombarded 24-7 with messages that sexually objectify them on TV, on social media, and in the culture at large. The consequences are real, and they are increasingly tragic. A research report produced by Thorne found that nearly one in seven children, 9 to 12, shared their own nude photos in 2020, almost triple the number from just one year ago. And I could go on.
We have uh, news and traffic coming up here at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation I had with Holly Girth, author of The Powerful Purpose of Introverts. Just before the break, talking about the exploitation of children and the sexualization of children and why it can't just... Um, be over, done, rejected, out of hand. Well, Earth to a corporate America, the sexualization of children is never appropriate. How hard can it possibly be for a publicly traded corporation to promise not to exploit children in businesses, in their businesses? Is it really too controversial to say that you won't sexually exploit a child for profit? At a time when corporations are falling all over themselves to take popular positions on social media, how can they possibly ignore a simple pledge to protect a a child's innocence and his uh, or her human dignity? We need to do everything that we can uh, to prevent the sexualization of children from becoming normalized. I mean, it may already be too late, but to reject its continuing. Well, children are being bombarded 24-7 with the messages that sexually objectify them on television, on social media, and in the culture at large. The consequences are real, and they're increasingly tragic. In fact, a research report produced by Thorne found that nearly one in seven children aged 9 to 12 shared their own nude photos in 2020, almost triple the number from just one year earlier. Why would they be doing it? Suicide is the second leading cause of death among children and young teens in America. Nearly a year ago, the U.S. Surgeon General warned about the looming mental health crisis facing America's youth. And new data shows that U.S. Suicides rate, uh, suicide rates rather rose in 2021 and males aged to 15 to 24 experienced the sharpest increase. Social media, especially platforms like uh, Instagram and TikTok, have been linked to anxiety, depression, disordered uh, eating among teens, and so on. And uh, parents are trying to protect their children. They're up against giant corporations that appear not to have children's well-being at heart. Our latest research report revealed that Hollywood is making uh, teen-targeted TV shows with explicit adult content to young teens through social media sites, popular with 13- to 7-year-olds, essentially doing an uh, in-run around parents um it's um it's difficult to uh, to accept to understand but we must oppose it hmm. well victor davis hansen wrote a piece um that i thought was rather interesting that if you really want to destroy the united states and there are several things that you might choose to do first you would surrender our prior energy independence Reduce new gas and oil leases on federal lands to the lowest levels of any president in history. Cut back production at precisely the time when the world is emerging uh, from a two-year lockdown with uh, pent-up consumer demand. Make war on coal and nuclear power. Drain the strategic petroleum reserve to make the pain for consumers more bearable for midterm election advantage. Cancel the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge oil and gas field. Block pipelines like the Keystone Oil Pipeline and the Constitution uh, National Gas Line. Overregulate and demonize frackers and horizontal drillers. Ensure there is less investment for their exploration and production. Make use of internal combustible engines, uh, uh, engines rather, or fossil fuel uh, power generation, prohibitively expensive. Uh, achieve a green oil dependency along the lines of contemporary Europe. 
Second, print trillions of dollars in new currency as the lockdowns end, demand rises, and consumers are already saturated with COVID-19 subsidies. Keep interest rates low, well below the rate of inflation as you print more money. Ensure that passbook holders earn no interest at the very time prices skyrocketed to the highest per annum level in 40 years. Spread the wealth by spending money Um, or rather sending money to those who already have enough while making it less valuable for those deemed to have too much. Ensure runaway high prices to wean the middle class off of its consumerism and supposedly to inspire them to buy less junk they don't need. Um, Condemn the rich in the open and uh, in abstract ways. Court them in the uh, concrete and specific secret darkness. Third, End American physical boundaries. Render it an at, a, a, a amorphous people and anywhere space. End any vis, um, vestigial difference between a citizen and a resident. Up the current nearly 50 million who are not born in the United States, 27% of California's population, to 100 million and more by allowing 3 million people to enter per year. Not through the legal channels, but just per year. Fourth, destroy the public trust in its elections. Render Election Day irrelevant. Make proper auditing of 110 million mail-in early ballots impossible. Normalize ballot in, uh, harvesting and curing. Urge uh, billionaires to infuse their riches to absorb the work of state registrars in key states, in key precincts to ensure the correct turnout. The correct turnout blast as election denialists, insurrectionists and democracy destroyers. Anyone who objects to these radical ballot changes neither passes passed by the Congress nor by state legislatures. Weaponize the FBI, the CIA and the Department of Justice. Fifth, redefine crime as one rich man's crime, another poor man's necessity. Let those who need things exercise their entitlement to them. Rewrite or ignore laws to exempt the oppressed who take or do what they want as atonement for past systems, racism and oppression. Six, junk the ossified idea of a melting pot and multiracial society united by common American values and ideas. Instead, identify individuals by their superficial appearance. Seek to be a victim and monetize your claims against perceived victimizers. Call anyone a racist who resists. Encourage each tribe defined by common race, ethnic, gender or sexual orientation affinities to band together to oppose the monolithic white privilege majority. Encourage societal and tribal tensions racially discriminate to end discrimination. Greenlight statue toppling, name changing, boycotting, cancel culturing, ostracizing and Trotskyizing. Erase the past, control the present and create a new American person for the future. Seven, render the United States just one of many nations abroad. Abandon Afghanistan in shame. Leave behind thousands of loyal Afghan allies, billions of dollars in equipment, billion dollar embassy and the largest air base in Central Asia. Appease the theocracy to reenter the Iran nuclear deal. Beg enemies like Venezuela, Russia and Iran to pump more oil when it's politically expedient for us to have abundant supplies. Oil that we have in abundance, but we don't produce. Eight. Neuter the First Amendment, enlist Silicon Valley monopolies to silence unwanted speech, free speech or once free speech while using big tech's mega profiles and profits to warp elections. Nine, demonize half the country as semi-fascist, un-American, insurrectionist and even a potential domestic terrorist. 
twice impeach a president who tried to stand in your way. Ten, never mention the origins of the COVID-19 virus. Never blame China for the release of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Exempt investigations of U.S. health officials who subsidize Chinese gain-of-function research. Ignore the Bill of Rights to mandate uh, and mandate vaccinations, mask wearing and quarantines. We have done all of the above. It would be hard to imagine any planned agenda to destroy America that would have been as injurious as what we've already suffered in these last two years. And it is a shame. Hey, we're out of time. Up next, Holly Girth, author of The Powerful Purpose of Introverts and Why the World Needs You to Be You. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, Holly Girth, is a Wall Street Journal bestselling author. She's a life coach and a counselor. She sold over 500,000 books. She's co-founded the groundbreaking blogging community, Encourage, and now she co-hosts the popular podcast, More Than Small Talk. Holly is also an introvert. Now, you might be asking yourself, how is that possible? Well, you may be surprised to learn that Joanna Gaines, Abraham Lincoln, Albert Einstein, Oprah, Jerry Seinfeld, C.S. Lewis, and others are also, in fact, half the population are also introverts. Well, in her latest book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, she shares what you need to know from brain science to the psychological, relational, and spiritual aspects of being an introvert. She also reveals exactly what will will help introverts uh, beat their struggles and maximize their strengths so that they can live with clarity, courage, and confidence in a world that needs what only they can give. Well, I'm delighted to have her with us to talk about her latest book. Um, and again, the title of that book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Holly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. I think before we begin, perhaps we should define what we mean by introvert. What does it mean to be an introvert and why does it matter? Well, being an introvert isn't about small talk or how much we like people or anything like that. It's actually about how our brains and nervous systems are wired. So introverts are wired in a way that means they prefer a less stimulating external environment. So they're at their best when less is coming at them. So when they're able to do things like fully focus on a project they're passionate about, have a meaningful conversation with one person, take time in their day for reflection, And so it really is more about how we engage with our environment than any of the other stereotypes we sometimes hear. So why is it important for us to identify either as an extrovert or an introvert in order that we can harness our strengths and perform to the top of our our capability? Because I think introverts and extroverts are actually a complementary pairing. You see that a lot in the creation story, day and night, land and sea, masculine, feminine. I think another one is introvert and extrovert. And so when both types understand who they are and use their strengths, then the world just works better because there are things that extroverts bring that we need and there are things that introverts bring that we need. And it also helps us to be aware of our weaknesses. And so that's why I think being aware of which one you are, even though we're actually all on a continuum, none Mm -hmm. of us are 100% introvert or extrovert, but knowing where you land can be really helpful. I was talking to my producer just a moment ago. He said he was an omnivert. Is that, a, is that now a, a popular term <laughs> to suggest that you have a little bit of everything? Yes. Well, your producer might not like my position on this. But <laughs> I tend to say, uh, you know, the ambivert, omnivert, 
I think we really are one or the other, even though we land somewhere on a continuum. Like I mentioned, they've done studies with people from infant, infancy through adulthood, and these characteristics are present. And so it's kind of like being right or left-handed. So uh-huh. all of us use our right and left hands all day, every day, but there's one that's naturally stronger and we rely on more. So I think that's what it's like being introvert and extrovert. And we usually do actually land in one or the other. I think you'll be proud to know that I held that position as he and I had a conversation on the subject <laughs> because of the powerful purpose of introverts. So <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, then we might imagine that extroverts are the movers and the shakers. Introverts are the quiet people who sit in the corner and watch things happen. You make the point, and I appreciate the familiar names that you also provide of introverts. You make the point that once you recognize your strengths and put them to good use, uh, that an introvert is all of those things and more. Yes, we have some strengths. Even a 10-year leadership study actually found that introvert CEOs were slightly more likely to outperform the expectations of their boards and investors. And that might sound surprising, but introverts just have a different style of leadership. It often looks like listening first, getting behind people or projects or causes they believe in, but it's very effective. And same with relationships. Introverts and extroverts are equally social, just differently social. So introverts may have a smaller circle, but deeper relationships. And so just appreciating that even if introverts aren't always as visible, what we contribute is just as valuable, can be a turning point. When did you first realize that you're an introvert? I first heard that word in college. I was at a campus ministry meeting and they had a guest speaker talking about personality and he said introvert. And it was like a light bulb went on that not only was there a name for my way of engaging in the world, I was far from the only one who did it. As you mentioned before, half the population is made up of introverts. So for a long time, I only knew one side of the story of introversion, that I didn't let small talk, things like that. But I didn't know this whole other story of the strengths and gifts. And when I started digging into that as a life coach and counselor, I wanted everyone to know the other side of the story, too. Yeah, yeah. And you touched on um, the uh, physically wired differences between introversion and extroversion. Um, How does one determine that they are one or the other? Can you explain from a scientific point of view and perhaps just a personal discovery point of view? Yeah, so I'll give you a really quick summary of the brain science behind it. Extroverts feel best through a neurotransmitter called dopamine that operates kind of like caffeine, revs us up, prepares us for action, released when a lot's coming at us from the outside. So introverts naturally have a level of dopamine that feels pretty good to us. So a lot more coming at us is like a whole pot of coffee, maybe exciting at first, but eventually exhausting. And we feel best through a different neurotransmitter, acetylcholine, that I say works more like herbal tea. So it's released when we do things like turn inward, focus deeply, have that meaningful conversation, some of the things I mentioned before. So that's one difference. And then we have two sides to our nervous system, sympathetic and parasympathetic. One revs us up, one relaxes us. You can guess which goes with which type. And then I find it fascinating that we even use different primary brain pathways for processing. So introverts use a longer, more complex brain pathway. Extroverts use one that's shorter, faster, more focused on the present. So that shows up, especially in conversation. So if you are someone who enjoys having time for reflection, likes to be able to focus deeply on projects or people who is just at their best when there's not a lot coming at you all the time, 
you're likely to be an introvert. If on the other hand, you're like, bring it on more, more, more. If you're the one leaving the party saying, where are we going next? Then you're likely to be an extrovert. And again, we're all on a continuum. So we have some of both. But in general, that's one thing that you can look for. Yeah, that's very helpful. And I should also point out that the book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, isn't just for those who would identify as introverts, but this is very helpful for the rest of the population as well to understand their counterpart on that continuum, uh, how to understand, work with, and encourage and inspire those who fit into that category. You say that what we see as a struggle in the um, category of introverts can actually be the biggest strength. Can you explain what you mean? Because I think when you think about introverts, not you, but generally when people think about introverts, we tend to imagine that there are more deficits. How can the things that introverts struggle with actually become their biggest strengths? Yeah, well, I think for all of us, if you picture the core characteristics of who we are at the center of a continuum, like for introverts, that would be our more sensitive nervous system, which takes a lot in on the left side of that continuum, it might be labeled struggle. And that's where things that introverts tend to struggle with, like anxiety, might reside. Then on the far right of that continuum, it would be labeled strength. And that's where things like empathy, being perceptive and observant live. And so for introverts, it's not about changing who we are, saying I need to be more like extroverts, but instead understanding the strengths that come with our wiring and moving toward them and having strategies to move away from those struggles. And so that's really what I wanted to communicate. And you can do the same thing, put an extrovert characteristic, that more active nervous system. On the left side, it might look like anger. And on the right side, it might look like passion. And so just understanding for all of us that who we are is intentionally designed. And it's not about being someone else. It's about learning to maximize who God made us. Once again, we're talking about the book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Holly Gerth is my guest. We'll continue our conversation in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and I'm continuing my conversation with Holly Gerth. She is a Wall Street Journal um, bestselling author. She's a life coach and counselor with the Master of Science degree in mental health. She's also an introvert, and her book is titled The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Now, it's it's easy to understand why introverts might feel pressure to convert to being extroverts, which is contrary to their wiring. Although, as you described earlier in our conversation, we're all on a continuum. You write about the importance of self-awareness and how crucial that is to our uh, ability to thrive. What tools have you seen that help with self-awareness so that we can maximize the gifts that we do have? Yeah, well, we all approach life from one of three perspectives self-criticism, which is we're hard on ourselves, wrestle with insecurity, self-focus, which takes us into pride and thinking life's all about us, and self-awareness is in the middle, and it's understanding who we're created to be so that we can use the gifts placed within us to serve, and so self-awareness gets confused with selfishness sometimes, but it's Mm -hmm. actually the opposite. It's preparation for service, so I love tools like the Myers-Briggs, the Enneagram, the Love Languages, Things like that that just give us a common language to talk about our strengths and weaknesses. I think that can be powerful. And the more we're aware of ourselves, the more appreciative we are of others as well. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, Self-awareness is crucial to thriving. You share nine specific strengths of introverts, the first one being strategic solitude. And and by the way, I love the the titles to each one of your chapters. Um, How is solitude different than simply being alone? And how how is strategic solitude uh, what we should strive for? But what are these these, uh, specific strengths of introverts? Yeah, so solitude and isolation tend to get confused. Isolation is living disconnected from God, others, and our truest selves. When God said it's not good for man to be alone, the root word is isolation. And we can be isolated even in a crowd. It's more about our souls than our physical circumstances. And so solitude, in contrast, is choosing physical time apart for a specific purpose, like rest, reflection, creativity, prayer, all these things that fill us back up so that we can go out and live a more connected, engaged life. So the end result is connection, even though we're pulling back for a while to have that time. And so research has shown for introverts and extroverts, solitude is essential, and especially for those in leadership. So I recommend people schedule solitude like they would an important meeting. An introvert probably needs more than an extrovert, but we all need it. Or if life's too crazy, just have a rhythm of solitude. Like Joanna Gaines, you mentioned, is an introvert, Mm -hmm. and she just sits in her car for five minutes before any new event. And that is her rhythm of solitude. And so I think that is a real strength that introverts can bring to our culture. It strengthens us personally, but it also gives others permission to take the solitude they need as well. Another of the strengths that you write about is meaningful connection, not just connection, but meaningful connection. This is, again, a strength of the introvert. Can you tell us a bit about it? Yes, because of our brain uh, brain pathway processing that I mentioned before, we do tend to want to go deeper in relationships. And we are in an environment where we're told that a relationship is about quantity over quality. And that's not satisfying for anyone, not even extroverts. But I think introverts who lean into that ability to build meaningful relationships tend to thrive. And we also help others around us do that, too. And so taking the pressure off and saying it's not about the number of people in my life or my Facebook followers or whatever it is that we're using to measure Mm -hmm. ourselves. But instead, how can I go deep with a few people? And then that often has a ripple effect to many more. You also list among those strengths, sacred confidence. Uh, again, I think people tend to imagine that introverts are something like shrinking violets who have little confidence. Uh, talk about the strength of sacred confidence in the introvert and how that can help an individual thrive. Yeah, well, first, I just want to touch on shyness is not introversion. When you say shrinking violet, that's really describing shyness, which is mm-hmm. based on fear. Extroverts can be shy as well. That's actually very different than being an introvert because being an introvert isn't about fear. It's about that wiring. And so sacred confidence in particular means embracing who God made us. And for a lot of introverts, that looks like saying it's okay if sometimes traditional church activities, big church services, serving on committees, joining small groups, going on mission trips, all these things. If we don't fully feel like they fit us sometimes, that's okay. It's okay if we feel closer to God when we're in nature or talking to one person or that it looks different. And I hear from a lot of introverts that that's a struggle. So I think for all of us, just pausing and saying, 
when do I feel most connected to God? How can I have more of that in my life? And then when I'm in circumstances that maybe are a little challenging for me because of my wiring, how can I adapt? Like I carry earplugs with me basically everywhere I go (laughs) in a journal and some things, even to church. And so I think sacred confidence is saying who I am is not only okay, it's intentional and I can receive that and walk in sacred confidence. Another strength introverts uh, of introverts that you mentioned is genuine influence. How have influence and leadership changed in the world, and how do introverts fit into that changing world? So influence used to look like a pyramid where someone at the top had influence through position or power. But social media and other things have flattened that. So influence more works like a web where someone in the center has meaningful connections that then ripple out like we were just talking about. So introverts actually thrive with that kind of influence. And if you think about the people who are most influential in your life, the answer is likely to be a parent, a coach, a manager, someone who's taken an interest in you, not necessarily the loudest, most visible, most outwardly successful person, but the person who is truly committed to making you successful. And that's what introverts often do in leadership. They get behind someone or behind a company, behind a cause, and they champion it until it is successful. And so just understanding that extroverts, absolutely, they make great leaders too for different reasons, but introverts lead equally well. And that's significant. And we often see introvert-extrovert pairings in leadership, like Mm -hmm. Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. And Jennifer Conweller calls those genius opposites. So I think when we all embrace our own style of influence, we are better together. We're talking about the book, The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Now, describe how happiness can be different for introverts and extroverts. Yes, this was one of the most surprising things I found. But to extroverts, happiness feels like enthusiasm and excitement because of those neurotransmitters, that dopamine and the way they're wired. To introverts, happiness feels more like calm and contentment. So this especially matters in relationships. I've talked to a lot of introvert-extrovert couples who have been trying to make each other happy, not realizing that they each experience it differently. And so I think a powerful question that you can ask, whether it's to a spouse, a coworker, a close friend, family, is just, Describe happiness in different terms. What does it actually feel like to you? And so I think understanding that about each other can be powerful. It can also keep introverts from chasing the cultural stereotype of happiness that's more extroverted but doesn't actually fit them. Now, what does it mean for each of us to live our powerful purpose? And I love the use of that phrase, powerful purpose, particularly for uh, introverts. But what does it mean to actually experience and live that powerful purpose? Yeah, I think living your powerful purpose simply means becoming all God created you to be, which obviously we're going to be on (laughs) that journey the rest of our lives. But I think for introverts, especially, it's saying, you know, I live in a more extroverted culture. At times, that can mean I feel pressure to change. But actually, our world needs what I have to offer more than ever before. Things like reflecting before reacting, listening well, making space to breathe. I just, I look at the world around us and I just long for introverts to say, I'm going to be who I am and I'm going to trust that it makes a difference. 
and to let go of any shame or guilt or what they've been told about they need to change instead just recognizing that we have strengths and gifts and obviously I feel that way about my extrovert brothers and sisters too I just think that introverts need that reminder maybe a bit more often Absolutely. Well, this is really an incredible book. I appreciate so much your taking the time to talk with us about it today, and I would certainly recommend it to our listeners. Whether you're an introvert or extrovert, we can help understand one another better. Uh, The book is titled The Powerful Purpose of Introverts, Why the World Needs You to Be You. Holly Girth, thank you so much for joining us. Stay safe and uh, have a great evening. Thank you. The Powerful Purpose of Introverts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. And I'd like to share with you a little excerpt from Heaven and Nature Sing, Advent Reflections from Hannah Anderson. She writes, You know, Mom, the voice echoed through the dimly lit sanctuary, bouncing off the stone floor and mullioned glass, Theoretically speaking, holy water is a limitless resource. As long as a solution is more than 50% holy water, the whole thing becomes sanctified. It's brilliant. If you do it right, you'll never run out. Well, this lesson in sacramental chemistry came shortly before midnight and shortly after the conclusion of a Christmas Eve service at a friend's church. Navigating our way out of the sanctuary, we had just passed an elaborate baptismal font, one presumably filled with water that was at least 51% holy. Like Nathan and me, our children have spent their uh, formative years in small Baptist churches, a fact that ensures their interest in more ancient ones. But as it is uh, for so many of us raised in low church traditions, we only know sacramental practice in theory. So when we visit more liturgical services, there's still a novelty to it all, including the holy water. Not that we Baptists don't have our own liturgies, especially around the holidays. We can fill the weeks before Christmas with just as much meaning as the next tradition. Here's how I've experienced it. Sometime in late late October, the countdown to Christmas begins with a scramble to organize the children's play. We drag out sets, hand out parts, sort through costumes, and set um, ears and tails. We sew them. Simultaneously, the adult choir begins practicing their cantata, including the work wooing its uh, delinquent members back just for Christmas. The Sunday after Thanksgiving, we'll start singing carols. Tom will offer his annual rendition of Star of Bethlehem, and Rhonda will show up in her collection of holiday sweatshirts, one for each Sunday of Advent. The tree will go up and someone will order the fruit baskets for caroling. But the real fun comes with the church-wide Christmas dinner, an affair packed with ham, biscuits, jello salads, sweet potato casseroles, red velvet cake, and homemade Christmas cookies. After which, the deacons will distribute brown paper sacks filled with old-fashioned candy, jelly slices, peanut brittle, coconut balls, and the largest navel orange you'll ever see all year. I wouldn't believe such things still existed either if I hadn't seen it myself. Having experienced both high and low church worship, I'm fascinated by tradition and how we determine the boundaries of sacred practice. The question becomes even more pressing when I consider the witness of the natural world. After all, if Elizabeth Barrett Browning is right, if earth's crammed with heaven and every common bush afire with God— How do you differentiate certain days, spaces, and times as sacred? How do we set aside this one and not another? How exactly do we ensure the purity of holy water? 
Well, the paradox of the sacred and mundane sits at the heart of the Christmas story, and we're first introduced to it in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 and 6, when we meet Zechariah, a priest married to a woman named Elizabeth. Both are righteous in God's sight, living without blame according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. They are also elderly and childless. As the story begins, Zechariah is serving in the temple sanctuary, burning incense before the Lord. Known as the holy place, the sanctuary held the gold lampstand, the table of showbread, and the altar of incense. The book of Exodus describes this incense as being made from equal parts of the spices uh, stack, anka, and several others, including frankincense, a recipe that was to be used for no other purpose and was regarded as holy belonging to the Lord. So there beside the altar, Zechariah is entering into ancient sacred rhythms that stretch back to the time of Moses. But they are not unbroken rhythms because the holy place in which he now stands once lay in ruins, desecrated and defiled. Repeatedly ransacked by foreign invaders, Solomon's temple fell in 586 B.C., and while Ezra rebuilt it roughly 70 years later, it was eventually defiled too. In 167 B.C., in a graphic show of force, Antiochus the Sixth Epiphanes erected a statue of Zeus in this second temple and used the sacred altars to sacrifice pigs. It's been said that hope has two beautiful daughters, anger and courage. Anger at the way things are and courage to see that they don't stay the same. So seeing the temple defiled in this way, a hope-filled priest named Matthias initiated a revolt that was eventually completed by his son Judah, the hammer. Within a few years, they'd regained control of the temple and began reestablishing worship. But here's the thing about holy places. You can't just start worshiping again. The priests, the temple, and all its vessels had to be re-sanctified. Under the law, that included a process of anointing them with holy oil. But like the incense Zechariah burned, this anointing oil was made from earthly common things. It consisted primarily of olive oil, perhaps the most mundane substance in the ancient Near Eastern world, used for everything from food to medicine to hygiene to light. So I can't help but wonder, how can something so mundane sanctify? Shouldn't holiness come from rare and special things? How can the ingredients for holy oil be so common? And then I remember the words of Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 4 and 5. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is, to, if it is received with thanksgiving, since it is sanctified or made holy by the word of God and by prayer. The oil itself is not holy. It is made holy. It becomes holy when it is set apart by God and for a holy God. But there was another problem. Having begun the process of rededicating the temple, Judah and the other priests find that all the vats of oil set apart for the golden lampstand had also been defiled, all except one. But this cruise was uh, this cruise only held enough oil for one night, and the lampstand had to burn continuously, or at least long enough for them to make and consecrate more oil. There was simply not enough. After all the years of fighting, all the pain, all the loss, there was nothing to be done. Had their faithfulness been in vain, was their hope misplaced? But then God stepped in. Tradition says that each night the flame was kept alive by a miracle of provision. The oil that should have lasted only one night kept flowing from the jar and lasted eight nights instead, enough time for the priests to press and consecrate more. 
I wonder if they thought of the widow uh, on those anxious nights, how God provided her with enough flour and oil to last the whole famine. Or maybe they remembered the mother and her son who poured oil from pot to pot to pot in an exercise of hope, always ready for it to run out, always finding it enough. Some scholars suggest that the tree of Isaiah 11, the tree whose shoot will grow from the stump, is an olive tree, both because of its ability to bear fruit and because the olive tree sends up shoots around its base. And this makes sense because Messiah and Christ mean the anointed one, the one set apart by the pouring of holy olive oil. But like his ancestor, David, who was the least obvious choice to be anointed king, there would be nothing obvious about the promised son. According to Isaiah 53, 2, he didn't have an impressive form or majesty that we should look at him, no appearance that we should desire him. The promised son would look like any other man. But by coming this way, by coming in the flesh, he would sanctify our flesh, making the world sacred by his presence. So we should not be surprised that this same anointed one celebrated the miracle of the provision of oil going up to the temple for the festival of dedication. Nor should we be surprised that like the common oil crushed to provide that holy oil, he too would be crushed for our holiness, that he was pierced because of our rebellion, crushed because of our iniquities. Punishment for our peace was on him and we are healed by his wounds. Today, celebrations of Advent and Christmas overlap with the celebration of Hanukkah, or the Festival of Dedication. But just as oil and water were made holy by a holy God, the significance of these days does not lie in the days themselves, but in the one to whom the days are dedicated. In the same way, those of us who follow Jesus are a people set apart, but not because of anything in us. We, like the olive tree, are common, but like the holy oil that comes from the olive— We have been sanctified, made holy by the Holy One. So like those who waited through those anxious nights so long ago, we put our hope in God's provision. We trust that the one who provided anointing oil also provided the anointed one. And on the days when you feel too common for God to use, when you find yourself overrun, defiled and desecrated, rest in this hope. The holiness of God never runs out and his grace is as limitless as he is. Again, Hannah Anderson, Heaven and Nature Sing. I want to thank James Blend for producing today's program, Sam Moppin for engineering. Have a good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
with in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.